So, we're getting ready for Christmas. And some websites say that the most popular meat for Christmas is turkey. How many of you having turkey on Christmas? Okay, I'm seeing some hands go up. Are you ready for this? Most popular vegetables. Most popular vegetables eaten at Christmas. Number one is, now, this isn't according to me. This is a, you know, website. Carrots are number one. Okay, I'm seeing some people say, yeah, with carrots. Number two is broccoli. We have broccoli lovers out there? Okay, all right, right there. I like broccoli. I always thought that Bush 41 was a nut, not wanting broccoli, so we're good. Three is potatoes. You all like your potatoes? You got to love potatoes, right? Four, cauliflower. Okay, you know, maybe they mix it with the broccoli, just it's like, what, two-thirds? No. Karen, you're shaking your head. No cauliflower on Christmas? Come on, it's white. Color-wise, it goes with the meal, right? Can you guess number five? You would think it would be green beans, but it's not. According to the website, it's Brussels sprouts. I know. I read that and went, really? Who's writing this thing? I mean, I say Christmas, you say Brussels sprouts. I don't think so. <laughs> okay, I need to know. How many of you do not like Brussels sprouts? See, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who like Brussels sprouts, those who don't. It's just like on the road. There's two kinds of people on the road, right? Those who use turn signals, those who don't use turn signals. You want me to preach that sermon? It's like the book of hesitations, right? Use your turn signal. It's either that or second Presbyterians. Not sure yet. I keep looking for it. It's out there somewhere. I know, but like Brussels sprouts, right? I think I should probably send an angry email back. But even though I do know that there's some people who love Brussels sprouts. Oh, boy. <laughs> you said her name. Those people are wrong. I mean, I keep thinking maybe I should give them another shot. I mean, you know, I, I, pers- I like escargot. I'm thinking, come on, I like escargot. Probably could do another try at Brussels sprouts. I don't know. Uh, the problems that you face at Christmas time, right? What veggies are getting served? Well, besides vegetables, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Phil Wickham. He's a, a Christian, a musical artist, fantastic. I like his stuff. This year, he put out a new Christmas hymn, a new Christmas song. It's called Manger Throne. If you have Spotify, go find it. I think it's fantastic. Listen to the words. He, these are some of the, the words he wrote into this song. Talking about Jesus, he said, You could have stepped into creation with fire for all to see, brought every tribe and nation to their knees, arriving with the host of heaven in royal robe and crown, the, the rulers of the earth all bow down. He also wrote, You could have marched in all your glory into the heart of Rome, showed them splendor like they'd never known, but you wrote a better story in humble Bethlehem, creator in the arms of common man. 
I mean, these are really interesting ideas. Ever pondered those kind of things before of why didn't Jesus? I mean, he could have come with the heavenly host, the armies of heaven, Michael at his right hand, and just marched on earth. Why didn't God do this? He's an all-consuming fire. Why not, number one? Why not, number two? The whole thing of just march on Rome. Show them your splendor. Show them that Rome doesn't know anything. Well, if you ask me when it says you could have marched in all your glory into the heart of Rome and show them splendor like they'd never known, that describes his second coming. And if God had come to earth as described, he could have conquered Rome and all the nations. But he would not have conquered our sin. Had he marched on Rome, had he come in his glory and blown down all of the kingdoms, if he'd made them all bow down to him, we still would have a problem. And that is we would have to stand before God's judgment seat and give an account for our sin. As David says, all my sins are ever before me. So the last line brings up the key idea, creator in the arms of common man. When you read this, this praise song, this Christmas hymn, when I read it, I just, my mind started going through the incarnation, one of the greatest miracles and theological items ever produced by the living God. I want to read to you John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. It reads, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to just go through this verse this morning. So the verse, first part there of this verse said, and the word became flesh. And this is the Greek word logos. Now I've taken you through this in the past, had discussions with some of you about this logos. For the Greeks, this meant the cosmic reasoning from which everything comes and is held together. At the center of the universe, at the center of everything, for the Greeks, is the Logos. It's the reasoning. Is the way they would see it. The answer to the question, why? Why? Logos. That's why. By the way, I think why is a fantastic question. Always ask it. Like I've told you numerous times, when you're reading the Scriptures, ask why. God's never afraid of questions. I think I'm more afraid about how He's going to answer the question than how I'm going to ask the question. Because sometimes, you know, He has ways of just bringing us into deep levels that sometimes we think, wow, this is way over my head. I mean, why is it? I mean, if you want to know why I think why is such a... When I was taking speech communications in my minor at, in college... To get us used to speaking, the, the professor had a bag. We all had to write out questions on it, and you stick it in the bag. It was to learn impromptu speaking. And what you had to do is take turns, and you reached into the bag, and you pulled out whatever the question was. You had to answer it. So the question I stuck in there was, why? You only had to answer for two. I thought it was like this great question, because it's the most open-ended question on the planet, right? They could have said anything. I like asking why. I like reading Scripture and asking God, why, Lord? Why is this? Because, again, many times God will take you into the Scriptures and you, 
He will show you his answers, or he'll begin to teach you it. It opens up this vast area of just seeking the living God out. Now, going back to the Greeks' conception of the logos, the big why, according to the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, it wrote that the Greeks considered the logos to be the shark, shock absorber between God and the universe because divinity cannot come into direct contact with matter in some of the teachings. Divinity cannot come into direct contact with matter. Um, when I read that, I went, well, they didn't know Jesus. <laughs> so that you don't think the Logos is just a philosophical idea. We go back to John 1.1. So you're reading in John 1.14. We're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter, back to the beginning of John chapter 1, which someone has been teaching on recently. Uh, Pete, if you want to learn on John, go to Wednesday nights. John 1.1 by the Spirit of God, John wrote, the Apostle John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word, and was the Word, and He is God. And when you read this verse, your thoughts may have gone right to Genesis 1-1, with in the beginning, right? Which reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. You should do that. You should make that transfer and go, oh, wait a minute. John 1.1 reads just like Genesis 1.1 in the beginning. There's a tie there. John 1.3, John chapter 1 verse 3, says of Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So when you go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all of it was created through the Word. All of it was created through Jesus. And we know from the Scriptures it was created for Him, through Him, by Him. Now when I talk about the Incarnation, so the Word, in the beginning the Word was with God. Right? And it says back in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, I know I'm flipping around verses, hang with me. We started out with, and the Word became flesh. We call this the incarnation. Again, this, you won't, if you look up incarnation in your Bible concordance, you won't find it. It's a theological term we use to describe what God did. And why do I think this is the greatest miracle? Because God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been and always will be, as I've typed before, the Father has always been the Father, the Son has always been the Son, and the Spirit has always been the Spirit. God has always been one God, eternally existing in three persons. But God the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been and always will be, who is omnipotent, He's all-powerful. You just read where all of creation was made through Him and for Him, by Him. And He's omniscient and He knew everything. And he's omnipresent and he's everywhere. And God the Son, who is just amazingly filled with glory, is taken from being God the Son and into a seed. And into the womb of Mary. How did God do that? 
Think about that. Just a moment. Dwell on this. Wait a minute. The glorious Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been and is omnipresent and all-powerful and all-knowing, is put into a seed and put into Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. And there he's joined with humanity so that, as I've shared with you before, he's not just God wrapped in a human body. He is, Jesus is fully God and fully human. One person with two natures. And you want to know one of the coolest things? I was reading the Westminster one day. You know what it says? He will always be fully God and fully human from here on out. He, when he left this planet, he didn't give up his humanity. He's the first, first fruit. We'll be like him. We'll be glorified like him. This is just one of those moments where Scripture, it, you know, in these few words, you can read them. You're reading through the book of John, and you're reading through, and you get to John you know, 114 says, and the word became flesh, and you can just like, you know, bop along right after that. But sometimes you stop and you go, wait a minute. I understand what the word, what the logos is. I understand this concept that Jesus is the reason that holds everything together. And I understand who he, as much as I can, who he is and who he's always been. And that's what makes Christmas so amazingly glorious at what, what God did. And here's the thing, he did it for us. He didn't do this so he could say, you wanna see something really cool? I can pull all kinds of things. I can do all kinds of miracles. That wasn't the point. The point was without him, we die. He has to do it to save us. And what I love is you go on in 14b, the second part of that verse. So. The, the Word became flesh, and then it says, and dwelt among us. Dwelt here comes from the Greek eskinosin, meaning to dwell, to pitch a tent, and camp, tabernacle. If you have the image when I said tabernacle of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, go through your mind. Well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, didn't they have to build a tabernacle? Didn't they have to construct it just right? Didn't they have to, you know, have the Holy of Holies in there where the Ark of the Covenant had to rest? Isn't, isn't that what they had to do? And there was all kinds of rules for how to make it and all kinds of rules of how to pack it and all kinds of rules on how to move it and how to move that Ark of the Covenant? Yes. And he came, the flesh came and dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us. Because, you know, when you get the image of that tabernacle, the tabernacle goes everywhere where God leads the Jewish nation out of Egypt. And they see the, the presence of the Lord, the cloud by day, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. You go back and study the tabernacle, how God didn't just say, hey, go on a trip and I'll see you later. He moved with them. And that's this image of Jesus dwelt among us. He didn't just show up, get born, instantly become a, an adult, get crucified, leave. He lives here. He lives with us. Listen to this prophecy 
out of Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Yeah, you, you listen to that one, you should be going, Jesus? Yes. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. What's the whole thing, though, about I won't abhor you? What? Because of our sin. And let's face it, nobody here on, on this planet's perfect. If you look around this room and see everybody else, you go, well, but that person seems to have it all together. Guess what? God could show up and go, oh, I can tell you all the ways they don't have it put together. He knows us. I, this verse is fantastic. And he will not abhor us. He, he loves us. And he calls us with all of our faults to follow him. And then he begins to clean us up. We call that sanctification. You've been made holy by God, and you're also in the process of being made holy. The moment you accepted Christ, you didn't become perfect. Just God's holiness rested on you, and he declared you holy because you're attached to him. But you're still going through the process of glory into glory, of sanctification. God's constantly removing things. Just when you think you have it all together, he shows up and says, hey, I've got something else to work on. You're like, really? We just did 10 others. Yeah, but, but I really want to go after that patience again. You're like, ah. He goes, exactly. <laughs> Obviously, more work's needed. You see, John will answer this, this Leviticus passage in 1 John. Now I'm taking to 1 John, not the Gospel of John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. John wrote, by the Spirit of God, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, and our own hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father, which was with the Father, and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You hear what John's saying? Yes, He was here. We saw Him. We touched Him. That's what the Apostle is telling you. This is a first-hand account of someone saying, we saw Him. I mean, you look at the date, right? 2023, about to go to 2024, and every time you say that date, I don't care, like I've told you before, I don't care if people do the BCE stuff and the, and the CE common era. All right, you can call it whatever you want. We know what the date is. And we know what happened 2,000 years ago. We know who was here. As much as you try to get around that with common era or before common era, because you don't want to do in the year of our Lord AD, go with it. But we know who was here 2,000 years ago, and his, his impact continues to go on and on and on. The Son of God was here. And this was God's plan. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Over 300 prophecies ranging back thousands of years about who the Messiah would be. And I may have shared this with you before. But the chances of one person fulfilling 300 prophecies, they say is equivalent to, uh, if you were born and raised in Texas, raise your hand, Phil. There he is. So... <laughs> This is good. It's all good. All right? Hang in there. It would be like this, according to what I read. Statistically, it would be like taking the state of Texas, dumping enough silver dollars to cover the whole state about a 
foot thick. Have somebody fly over Texas, paint one silver dollar bright red, throw it out a window indiscriminately, and we take Phil and say, you're from Texas, Phil. And we blindfold him and say, just start walking, and whenever you feel like it, bend over, stop, bend down, and grab a silver dollar and see if it's the red one. How many days would it take to walk across Texas? All right. So you'd have to pack them with some water because we don't want them doing it in the first five minutes and going, okay, I'm done. They say statistically that's the same as one person fulfilling all 300 prophecies or more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah is the same chances of Phil not looking for it, blindfolded, just reaching down and grabbing a silver dollar and saying, here it is. And it's the red one. So like I said, this is God's plan. Two of the prophecies that apply to today were written by Isaiah 700 years before Christ, before the Messiah. Isaiah 7.14 and 9.6. Let me read 9.6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yes, that prophecy gives you a bunch of hints about what's coming. 700 years, what Isaiah was writing is 700 years from now, a child is going to be born, and this is how he'll be described. Not only the wonderful and the counselor, but mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And then you get Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah wrote 700 years before the Christ. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this all links together because Emmanuel means God with us. Yes, he came to dwell with us. Like I've said before, yes, God could have, instead of flooding the earth and then putting up a rainbow saying he won't do that anymore, I hope you thank God when you see rainbows. Because earth floods are really bad events. Every time he sees that rainbow, he remembers the covenant that he's made with us as human beings. But yes, instead of flooding the earth, he could have incinerated the earth and said it's tainted now. Let's just wipe it out. And we wouldn't have been here. But before the foundation of the earth, God planned you. And he's loved you. So the heart of Christmas is instead of God wiping out this planet and starting over, he sent his son right into the middle of a sewer planet. I'm talking about sin. And the plan all along was that the very creatures made in his image, us, would crucify him and take his life. And that every sin I've ever committed would be upon him upon the cross and that he would become a curse before the living God, before his father and die with all my sins on him. That was the plan. So this is the heart of Christmas is the incarnation of the son of God. Let me go into as a 
as an application on this. I want you to walk away from the sermon and remember that Jesus was one person with two natures, fully God and fully human. That's what happened when he was born, this amazing savior on the earth. And that he will live a life without sin. And that he came to die on the cross and rise from the dead. And he did this so he could save us for eternal life with him. You see, he came and dwelt with us, but we get to go dwell with him. And to save us from eternity in hell. So would you please, sometime tomorrow, you can do it tonight, but sometime tomorrow, either when you first wake up or when you get into celebrating at some point in time, will you tell Jesus happy birthday? Will you just tell him happy birthday? Because you know what? His birthday has made me happy for decades. Yeah, it comes with all kinds of things going on and all the pressures and everything else, but when you really get to boil it down and scrape back the Brussels sprouts and the turkey and the gifts and the lights and the singing and everything else, and you get right down to the heart of it, it's a birthday. The Son of God And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, mm, a little early, but happy birthday. We're getting ready to celebrate. We'll exchange gifts because you're the greatest gift, and in honor of that, we like to give each other gifts, and maybe there's a lot of them, maybe there's a few, who knows? Maybe none. Doesn't matter. You're the gift. You are the one. Father God, thank you so much for not just destroying us, but instead sending your son and the way you sent him. Because, Lord, if he had entered Rome as a king and put to shame even the glory of Rome, I still have to pay for my sin. I'd have to die a gruesome death. But instead, you didn't do that. You, you sent him here and put him into a manger. And you raised him. And Lord Jesus Christ, you came to give us life. You paid for our sin on that cross. And that's why you were born onto this planet. Yes, Lord, you're a king. The wise men gave you gold, but they also gave you frankincense and more burial spices. It's written through the whole event. Thank you and happy birthday. You are the eternal one and you live forever. And our hearts are for you. We love you.